Find Your Faith with the Find Your Faith podcast. interesting conversation. This is the morning with my father. I bring my father Simon Olston to the podcast because as many of you will be aware my new book called Finding My Feet, My Story, which is a a memoir, uh, has been released last Friday with pre-orders which absolutely incredibly sold out within seven hours. And so many people these days, after I speak, after I share my story, and and now I know that with the book coming out, people ask how my family are. And I've always struggled to find the right words because, you know, it's complicated. Life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. Families are complicated things. But to speak on someone else's behalf is, is really tough. And so my father has always been a pillar of strength for me. Um... As you will probably hear from this conversation, his compassion, his thoughtfulness, his deep um, belief in in me and and willingness to help me to literally find my feet in life um, really shines through. And I really felt that I wanted him to be able to uh, talk about what what drives him, what motivates him and and the purpose through which he lives his life. Um, I learnt a lot in this podcast for instance I, I didn't know that on my father or my mother and father's wedding certificate he had himself down as a farmer when later on in life he went on to law and then to become the ombudsman of Tasmania um, he's such an incredibly talented man so well read learned listened um, and one thing that I love about my father is that he he listens so much more than he speaks so Today's conversation goes in so many different directions. I mean, we had a bit of a plan, but no plan. So I think that you're going to love just the genuine conversation. And for most of it, I forgot that there'd be people even listening. (laughs) I feel like I'd love to bring him back on and and explore more the concepts of regenerative farming and regenerative agriculture, and particularly his belief that uh, rejuvenating soils is something that can really help us to address climate change. It's a point in conversation and a point in time. We're surrounded by the COVID-19 saga still (laughs) playing out around us. But what I've really loved about this time for me personally is that it's really brought my values and my purpose to life. Um, I must say that going into this whole COVID experience, I thought I knew myself, but it's really highlighted that we're always on that journey and I'm actually more comfortable even in who Hanny is now than I was even four to six weeks ago. So I hope that you're also all using this experience just to, um, to be, you know, to, to try new things and, and sit comfortably in your own skin. Um, and if there's obviously anything that I can do to help, please just reach out. Before I get any deeper into the conversation with my father, I, I do just, I, yeah, want to re-highlight that the fact that my book, my memoir, Um, as terrifying as it is that people will read my vulnerability on the pages um, I'd really love it to to get some legs and to to get further afield so that you know we can all help more and more people to help them find their feet 
I wrote it with purely that in mind. There was, there's no, it was not about, it was not about my ego. It was not about revenue. It was literally just if my story can help someone else to sit up and go, me too, then it was worth writing that book. So um, if you haven't got a copy, uh, I'd love to direct you. You can go anywhere, but um, Booktopia does a great deal on the books at the moment. Or if you want, you can also get it through Find Your Feet, um, my small business. It's also available on all the major ebook platforms um, internationally in paperback and ebook versions as well. Uh, the other thing that I'd really love um, is for anyone who's read this book or my trail running guidebook, I'd love some feedback. I'd love some reviews. I'd, I'd just love to know um, how people are using the writing to, to help them to find their feet. So um, if you want to review it on Booktopia or on Find Your Feet, Amazon, any of the platforms, um, I'd, I'd love it if you could leave a review. Well, I feel like that's enough from me. Um, don't forget, though, that if you need anything for your wild adventures, um, I offer all my podcast listeners the opportunity to get a 20% discount at checkout through Find Your Feet. So if you need shoes, toys, anything, you know, just jump across to findyourfeet.com.au and uh, put in the discount code podcast at checkout. So podcast at checkout gives you 20% discount. All right. <laughs> I know my dad was nervous coming to the podcast today. I mean, quite rightly so, because um, we've both lived a very rich, meaningful, and at times challenging life. But I, um, I hope that he enjoyed it as much as me, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. So here's Simon Alston, my father, in conversations this morning. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> We've been on so many walks and I keep feeling like I'm trying to twist your arm to get you behind the microphone. And partly because I had so much fun with James, sitting down and exploring everything that's in his head and his knowledge. But I felt like with the, I guess with the book coming out now and um, so many people sort of ask me about the family and what we're all up to and how we're all going, I sort of felt like it was nicer that we could give them your voice rather than just my answer. And also because we have so many interesting conversations around where the world's at now and what help it needs from us. So I wanted to like explore that side of it with you. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but um, the most important thing is like, I think I'm just really curious. I'm so curious about so many things that you listen to, that you read about, that you work on for yourself in the garden, particularly in the farming side, and how you or like what's driving you and the purpose behind that. So that's kind of what I'd really love more to, to focus on today rather than, I mean, it's nice to explore a bit of the story, but more about your knowledge. Um, but I, I probably feel like um, the most relevant kind of topic that's around at the moment is COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And you've been such a sort of supportive pillar of support as we sort of stare down what we thought was bankruptcy and then navigate our way back out of that state. But um, I'm kind of really interested because I think one of the biggest challenges that we all face at the moment is maintaining a sense of wellness and balance and quietness despite all the noise going on around us. And you've always seemed to have been someone who's been so steady through times of crisis. (laughs) So I'm kind of wondering whether you're doing anything different like how, how you're navigating the noise, really. 
I'm not doing anything different. Um, I don't think. Um, for the people who are listening, I should explain that um, I live on a 70-acre property on North Bruny, which is an island near Hobart. And um, although it's only about 30 kilometres as the crow flies from Hobart, it's it feels like somewhere entirely remote. And um, although the world presses in on it. And um, one of the things that we've had on Bruny Island for a long while is um, pressure of tourism. And it's just been worrying the locals a lot and worrying us a lot. Um, because Bruny is such a special place and it's at risk of being changed enormously by the pressure of people. And one of the wonderful things about COVID is that we haven't had the tourists. They've just disappeared. And we live on a main road, um, although it's a gravel road at the northern end of the island. And for a while this year, before COVID, we just had streams of cars going past. And um, it was quite concerning, really. And now, um, there's hardly a car goes past every hour, you know. There might be a couple of cars, you know. It used to be that when the ferry was in, we'd suddenly have a stream of cars going past. Um, and you'd know it was such such ferry that was the cause of those cars. Now there's no such pattern. It's just the locals moving around, doing their thing. And um, so I'm living my normal life in a way. The only thing that's different is I don't come into town once a week to play cello in, the, in a, one of the local orchestras, um, which I'm missing. But otherwise... I'm concentrating on the farm. I can come into town and get farm supplies and food and stuff if I absolutely need to, but I'm getting on with projects, and that's just wonderful. And my wife, Janelle, um, is home one extra day a week, so she's a GP, as you know, and um, and she's working two days a week in the clinic and one day a week doing telehealth, and and that's lovely too, yeah. Mm. So It's such a shift. I mean, one thing that's become really apparent for me especially when I've been editing the book and reading back through especially all the stuff around our childhood and growing up on a farm and adventures in the old combi van the red orange van that I used to cringe when you dropped me off at school because I was like oh it's so embarrassing when everyone else is turning up in their schmicker looking cars but now I think it'd be like freaking cool (laughs) to turn up with Simon and Garfunkel rocking out of the speakers but um it's just that when we were growing up as children and even into our early teens, you could just jump in the van and you could go anywhere in Tasmania. You didn't ever have to think, would you find a campsite and, um, or, you know, could you head into the walls of Jerusalem and be able to pitch a tent? Whereas now you have to really think about, will we get a campsite and will it be too busy and um, how many cars will be on the road and, and how slow will it take to get through Hobart and get out on the main roads? And, like, everything has become a lot busier in recent times and, and your experience on Bruny Island is only one example of mm. that I think um, although it's been really heavily hit by tourism and I'm very pro-tourism I mean my businesses rely on tourism but it's an unusual time for especially speaking for Tasmania to be Tasmanians living in Tasmania and have Tasmania for us mm. like when was the last time that we could have had this opportunity Really? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's quite a long while ago. I mean, it's a bit of a worry for Tasmania because our economy's been booming for the last you know, couple of years, really, and founded on tourism. 
essentially because we were found by the Chinese and then a little bit later by middle class Indians and um, and there's been yeah a real boom going on but I actually think we we've seen the end of it um, I, I, I may be wrong about this but we've got a friend who's an epidemiologist and we talk about this with her quite a bit and she was saying, saying to us last night that she thought that um, the international border with the rest of the world, Australia's border with the rest of the world, would be um, tough to get through, in a sense, um, for the, the, the for years, she said. She thought that, um, you know, if you were going to come in from overseas, you'd need to be quarantined. Well, a tourist won't want to come here and sit in a hotel for two weeks before they can go out and see the country. And, um, and particularly the Chinese tourists, who normally only come for four or five days, and you know, they, they earn money for ages to save to come for four or five days. They won't be able to do that anymore. We're going to see an utterly transformed Tasmania, in my view. I think tourism will be, it'll be within, uh, tourism within Australia because Australians won't want to go overseas because of the problems of getting back in and whatever. Um, and so we'll probably see a lot of Australians coming to Tasmania for a change of air, but I don't think we'll be seeing foreigners coming here in numbers for a while, which will transform the Tasmanian economy. And it might end up looking a bit like what we remember, you know, in the, in the 1980s and the 1990s. Who knows, but... Um, 1980s, 1990s being, like, less busy and more localism and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And you will you will be able to go to parks and not expect to see large numbers of people. And uh, I would think, anyway. Or um, do you think that there's a different shift happening? I mean, this is something that I've been wondering, is that... I feel like COVID-19, what really happened for me personally, and I guess I can only speak for myself, um, is that it really brought my values to light and, um, and a sense of purpose to light, but especially my values. And it made me really appreciate what we have in our own backyard. And I say that as someone who had got quite itchy footed and had been thinking that and it sounds egotistical but it's not coming from that place but like maybe the island was too small for me you know Mm. maybe the world felt like I felt like I needed to go out and explore the world again and it's just made me so grateful I think to live in an environment where we have a natural and wilderness setting on our back doorstep and I've been talking to Alice who I've been working um, with very closely in my coaching and she's um, currently held up in a flat in Singapore and she has had the same revelation that she never ever wants to be in a situation where she can't be in nature. Mm. Um, And so I wonder whether we're not going to see this exodus of people coming, whether it's to Tasmania or to fringes of city environments or to like cities like Canberra where nature and urban's blended together, but an exodus of people towards their natural environments and if it's not to live there but to at least explore them and yes maybe not the international market but I just wonder whether we're seeing a movement of um, Australians appreciating nature more or maybe I'm just an optimist I don't know. <laughs> no I, I'd agree with you um, I think I was just discussing this with Janelle in the car coming in cities are, uh, are, are wonderful places for creativity in a sense and humankind wouldn't have got where it has without the cities. But they're very destructive places as well. Mm. And if you want to catch COVID, go and live in a city. I mean, look what's happening in New York at the moment. And, um, yeah, I think people are suddenly realising, particularly those people, like you, like you say, who've been holed up in flats and things like 
like that and uh, prevented from you know even exercising very far or mm. something like that they must be just desperate to be out of doors and I just feel like I'm on the pinnacle of human experience at the moment in that I live on a farm and I and on I, an I, island I, off an island yeah. off an island my my wife's uh, eldest son is uh, living in a flat in Paris and has had COVID it appears and you know, he hasn't been able to go out for two months. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would just... I'd, I'd go stir-crazy. I couldn't cope with that. No, I couldn't. And, um, and yeah, I think it's right. People are, are going to become closer to nature, and indeed are. When you go out, you see more people exercising than ever before. Yeah, exactly. Um, and interesting in sort of my area of interest, my mother told me yesterday that um, a neighbour of hers had gone to pick up some chickens from the local... Um, <laughs> Uh, chicken food and chicken supplies provider and um, and she'd hoped to pick up those chickens that day but she was told no you've got to come back on Tuesday and this woman had actually sold 600 chickens in two weeks so there are all these people who suddenly think I need to start growing my own food I need some chickens mm. and and all the seeds all the seed suppliers online seed suppliers are inundated they've been shutting their books and catching up before they they allow people to order again I've had to order my seeds about a week ago to make sure I could get what I needed because um, I would normally order seeds in July or August, but I was frightened I might not be able to get all the things that I would I would need. Even though we grow a lot of seed, we need seed that we can't grow or we haven't started to grow. And um, yeah, so things are changing really rapidly. Um, so let's explore that because that was... I feel like the dad that I've definitely come to know particularly over the last, say, 10 years, has been someone who just wants to pursue gardening and farming and and not just doing it purely because it gives you joy, because I know it does bring you huge joy, but also out of a sense of purpose that um, we need to be growing our own food. We need to be eating more organic with less pesticide use. We need to be looking at um, soil as a, as a way of, um, I guess, helping to reverse climate change. So is this kind of, do you feel like this experience of people living more locally with more awareness, um, do you see this as maybe the shift that the world needed and can it hold its path through this or are we going to revert? (laughs) Can it hold its path? I think there's a lot of forces of evil that want to use this crisis as an opportunity to entrench their own power and that's really frightening. But on the other side, we've got people who are suddenly realising that they want to be more in control of their lives. And they are thinking, well, I can grow some of my food in my back garden. I don't have to go and buy it all from the shop. And then, of course, there's a whole raft of people who are realising that the food you buy from the shop is actually quite badly poisoned and you're not doing your health any good by obtaining your food by that means. Um, So... Yeah, there's all sorts of things that are shifting the world in this direction. I think we didn't expect a pandemic to shift us. Mm-hmm. Those you know, optimists like myself were hoping that the world would wake up and realise that climate change demanded that we alter our lifestyle. Now we're being forced to alter our lifestyle in ways that is actually helpful to the climate. Um, you know, the fact that so many planes are grounded... Uh, a friend of ours was showing me an app the other day, which I think was called Windy, which had um, lots of uh, analyses of the weather. And on this, you could see 
um, a map of the world with the intensity of CO2 emissions demonstrated. And China was bright red because they've got back to production. But the rest of the world, except for little patches in, uh, in, uh, in North America, was blank, you know, where the, the factories aren't pumping up. CO2 into the atmosphere in large parts of the world, people aren't travelling. I mean, we're actually doing a lot of good, or the planet is obtaining a lot of good from this, um, even if people might be hurting, which is a really fascinating circumstance. And it seemed crazy because until now, it was always like it's too hard to shift everyone on the planet towards a slower, more conscientious way of life. Like, it, that was one of the reasons for, yes, we acknowledge climate change is here, but it's going to be so difficult to have change happening to the scale and breadth that it needs to be happening to reverse climate change. And yet, in the space of a few months, the world has been reversing climate change, whether it liked it or not. Exactly. And, it, and it's absolutely fascinating in that... Um, I don't want to minimise the pain that people are suffering and so on, but if you think about it, we haven't yet had 100 deaths in Australia. Um, we've, the, the, the number of COVID cases is actually in the... I can't, I'm not sure what it is, but it's in the low thousands. Um, uh, and if you compare those numbers with the population of Hobart, which is about 180,000, that's not much. And yet we have tipped our whole economy on its head because the scientists have said to us, if you're not careful, the, the force of exponential growth will cripple the society. So we've listened to the society, we've turned our economy on its head, uh, we've undergone enormous lifestyle change. We've done, in a sense, listening to scientists about COVID, what we should have done listening to scientists about climate change. And um, but we've done it almost for the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, but good will come out of it. There's no question good will come out of it, but I, I do think we have to be really careful that the situation isn't exploited by people who will do us harm. Mm. Um, so then coming back to, or maybe before we even explore the, the importance of localism in regards to like our own food production and having our own compost heap in the backyard and all of the little things that people are beginning to explore and can do going forward to help with climate change. But like, why did you, I guess I don't even really know this. I just always knew that dad loved gardening. Um, I love to like play games on you, help push the mower around, help weed the patches and um, eat the peas. Um, why like, why farming, why gardening? Because I know, I know grandma, so grandma, just for those who are listening to us rambling, <clears throat> is now 96 this July 96 um, am I correct in saying that she brought alpacas to Australia uh, she was one of the first one she of didn't the first bring people. them here yeah she was yeah. one of the first to get into it so she sold her prized like herd of cattle much to your father's horror and went into alpacas <laughs> yeah well, I don't know that he was hor horrified about it maybe he was she tended to get her own way so. <laughs> she's pretty extraordinary <laughs> so she moved to the island as well when she was 90 uh, she's been there a couple of years she lives three kilometers down the road um, at a place called Dens Point on her own on her own looking out on a one Wonderful view out along yeah. towards Hobart up the channel. Bought a red sports mini when she was 91, yeah, 93. Yeah. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a legend. So I know that she's always, you know, been 
had the green fingers and been really interested in farming and gardening but like why for you did it start through them or is it something that developed well i tend to think there's something a bit genetic there in that my great-grandfather on my mother's side or one of my great-grandfathers on my mother's side was a market gardener mm-hmm. in england um and uh, but he died before i i think he died after i was born but i don't remember him um and my mother was very fond of him um, my mother definitely has um, an instinct with plants. Um, she's she's got a, a, a fair level of knowledge, but she's she's just got a capacity to help plants thrive. Um, and plants that I'm not particularly interested in, like I don't go out of my way to grow. She's she's like flowers and things like that. She's she's very good with. And I remember when I was really little, they had a, a fairly large garden uh, with greenhouses. And I used to go into the greenhouses and pick the peas, just like you used to pick from my garden. And uh, she used to grow chrysanthemums and tomatoes. And I think that would have got into my blood a bit. Um, so I start- that was in England? Yeah. And then when we came to Australia um, in 1969, about a, within the first year, they bought a, a big uh, a place with a garden, which was about an acre at Glen Waverley near Melbourne. And um, my daughter, my sister had always wanted a horse and this garden gave the opportunity to have a horse unfortunately that had a lovely orchard and they stuck the horse in this orchard and it damaged trees as horses will do but um i discovered then the power of manure because my sister used to muck out this horse every day and there was a large pile of manure and there was some lovely grapefruit trees which were not that productive which were on this block and my mother used to pile the manure under the grapefruit trees. And then suddenly, from having no grapefruit, we had buckets and buckets. These trees were laden with grapefruit, and the same happened with kumquats. And then, and then my sister knew this old guy uh, locally uh, through her horse stuff um, who came up and did some gardening for us and started a vegetable garden. And, um, and then I got interested in that. And then I discovered that I could grow fantastic tomatoes and beans using the horse manure. And now I know as a gardener um, that horse manure is really the best. Yeah, right. Um, people, it's not the strongest by way of nitrogen and stuff like that, but by way of fertility, it's just extraordinary. If you can get the urine in particular, not not the dried pebbles that people pick up off their paddocks, you know, you, the people sell at the gate, you don't want that. You want the manure that's soaked in urine. Anyway, so I discovered this. And then when I was at university, I think I was reading their, their university magazine, um, this was Monash. Um, the magazine was called Tagatus, and um, somebody had written an article about compost and organic gardening, and I was just infected by the by the common sense of this. <laughs> and then I decided I was going to have my own garden, and my parents by then had bought a farm in a really um, unsuitable place in the mountains, um, not too far from Melbourne, with fantastic mountain soil. And I started my first vegetable garden there. And at the same time, I was working for an old landscape gardener in Melbourne, um, who really has been like uh, one of the great inspirations in my life. And he introduced me to um, the principle that you are what you eat, that you have to be really careful what you eat, um, because you know that has a really critical effect upon your health. So those all those things came together. And really, since then, that's just been a plank of my life. I just have to be, I, uh, you know, I, I have to garden. It's just part of me. I have to grow my own food um, and I have to eat really consciously.
and all those things that sort of tied together. So would you say which of the which of the prongs um, pushes you the hardest? Is it does it come from this is what I've always done, like I guess heritage and a way of life and the joy of that? Does it come from a sense of purpose for the planet or does it come from health? I'm just kind of curious. Um, if I had to choose it, one of those, I'd say health. But I'd say that the real answer is it's a fundamental principle in my life. Mm. And if I travel and I can't get, um, you know, food is, is not easy to choose. You know, like, you know, we went to America, we went to Florida. I'd walk through the supermarket and I couldn't find something that I wanted to eat because everything was industrial food. And... Um, and yeah, even in those circumstances, I go out of my way to pick the safest of the of the bad options and things like that. It, that so it comes from there, but in a sense, it's a fundamental principle of my life in a way that I've only come to appreciate really in the last few years. Um, but I, I have to do it. Um, I just, it's my it's it's my rock, you know. Mm. I. Uh, if my garden is out of control, I feel unsettled. If I haven't had my fingers in the soil, if I haven't, yeah, if there are weeds in a patch that are doing damage to you know, a crop or something like that, you know, I'm not settled until I've, I've got it sorted. <laughs> Do you think it goes the other way as well, that when you're unsettled, like say on an emotional or spiritual level, that the garden will be unsettled too because if grandma could have a way with plants that goes beyond just her knowledge it suggests that there's like an energy relationship in there as well yeah it's possible yeah I, I won't let the garden suffer for too long before I rectify it so it may be a trigger to me to say look you've got to get yourself back in balance if the garden's not quite right but there's another there's another side to it which is not just the fundamentals of having your fingers in the in the soil or things like that. It's um, it's also all the planning that goes into having a successful garden. And, and that is a rock around which my life is constructed. So um, just to give a hint of that, um, except in the, when the growing season is, is um, it, you know, we, we, when we're between growing seasons, as we are pretty much at the moment. Um, I'm sowing every month. I'm planting seedlings every month. Um, and th those are the rocks around which my gardening um, pivots. So I use the moon, and I have done for many, many years as the guide. And when the moon is waxing, I'm sowing. So waxing Waxing being... is going from new to full. So when the mean moon is going from new to full, I'm sowing. What is it, like, what is it with the the lunar cycles that gives plants the energy is it the light is it I, don't, I still don't completely understand no that. and and i think the, the, there's different way there's different um understandings about it and and the using the waxing waning cycle um is pretty crude but it i find it helps it's like it, um if you haven't got all your other gardening going well don't worry about the moon in a sense. Um, it's just like that little bit of extra um, encouragement. It's just getting, giving, the, giving the plants the optimum opportunity is the way I look at it. 
But that's one side of it. But the other side of it... Oh, just to answer your question. Um, you know how you feel when the moon is full? Mm. You feel like you've got a bit more energy. And you can't you're, sleep. Exactly. Yeah, you feel like you're en- energized. You're getting the advantage of that. That that cycle. That that. I mean, the whole the whole world operates. I mean, the moon sits out there. It affects the tides. It affects... Uh, human moods it does all sorts of things and we're just tapping into those energy changes and um, so when the when the moon is waxing so going from new to full the earth is breathing out and when the moon is waning the earth is breathing in so it makes sense that when you're trying to get the seeds to jump out of the ground you're using the energy that's coming out of the earth and when you are trying to get the plants to consolidate their roots, you use the energy that's going into the earth. Mm. So the reason I mention it really is that it's a structure around which my life pivots. So as I realize, we have a calendar, as you know, on the toilet wall, which has the moon cycles on it and lots of other information related to biodynamics. And, um, and so I'm aware of when the moon is about to wax so I get my seeds out and I get my seed planning out and um, my, you know, my planning book and, uh, and I get onto my computer and I work out what I'm going to sow that month. And I make a list. I make a list of the things that are going to be sown in flats, in pots for, for seedlings. And I work out what's going to go into the ground. And then I sow them during that period. And then... Uh, I've got all these seedlings which will have been sown earlier on which are growing at the same time and when the moon starts to wane I go to my seedling collection and they start to go out and of course the ground is managed in a way that it's ready to receive crops at different times in different ways whether it's by seed or by seedlings and that's a structure which is inherent to my life and without which I would find it hard to do mm. what I do. Um, because it just makes things orderly and I know that I can go and spend a few days fencing or something like that because I don't have to work in the garden at the moment, but I will be working in my garden next week, say, and that sort of thing. There's an intellectual side to that and I know that you read incredibly widely and always have done. You've had a fascination with learning. I think I could probably <laughs> take after you there. But there's also a very intuitive sense of dri- drivenness in that and... Um, understanding about your sense you you know your connection with the natural world going on around you but I feel like there's a work that needs to be done to kind of allow yourself to be that in tune with nature um I mean I've seen periods of your life where you have lived in a more urban environment and it feels like you find it harder to remain in touch with kind of the cycles and the seasons and the natural world and it almost is like putting a wild creature in a in a cage to some degree so I'm kind of wondering whether you do anything of with a sense of purpose to ensure that you remain in touch with the natural world around you or do you just try or have you found a way where your lifestyle allows you to live um intuitively well, I have found a way, and it's called retirement. <laughs> and <Stop it. laughs> I was I was incredibly fortunate to be able to retire at fifty eight. Didn't have to, but I decided to because I by then was able. I you know I had the superannuation to be able to do it, 
and um, and that has enabled me to be myself mm. in a really fundamental way and in a sense thereby to recognize myself I now know without a shadow of a doubt that I I have to be um, I can't be sitting for too long I definitely can't be in front of a computer for very long because I spent too many years doing that I have to be out of doors I have to be creative uh, particularly in, on the land um, I, 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 it's fundamental to me that I need to look after people mm-hmm. who are close to me it's I yeah the worst part of being alone is not being able to care for somebody else mm. I learned that very clearly and um, I need to look after land <laughs> and uh, it's just you know, that's just what I am and um, and when I look at the description of the Taurus personality and you know I'm a Taurus I am I am that person and I've come to accept it and and I know that if I stray far from that I won't feel well. Mm. I can go travelling for a while and and feel um, and and really get energised by it because you know you're learning a new language or you're mm. you're um, you're seeing lots of new sites and new cultural things. There's lots to think about, lots to discuss. But I just need to be at home pretty soon thereafter and just get back into my normal routines and 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 activities. A homing pigeon. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you know. um, I've mm. been called the same and. <laughs> But then that makes me think, was there a time in your life, say when you were exploring your gardening early on and working with your landscape gardener, that you also had that kind of sense of a calling to, say, the natural world and gardening and um, presence? And then did you stray out of that into the, we went into law and the corporate world. Did you have that early on and, and sort of, Ignore the calling, yes, and I did. then now return to the calling. Is that yeah, I d- kind of... no, I, d- I definitely did. Yeah, um, I had. I went through a sort of crisis point in about um, nineteen seventy-nine or eighty. Um, I had been overseas and uh, to finish my training in London as a lawyer, and um, I came back to Australia. And a very close friend of mine said, you would make a terrific barrister. And he had become a barrister. And he encouraged me to go to the bar in Melbourne, which I did for a year. And I felt like a complete fish out of water. And I gave that up. And I told myself I'd never go back to the law again. And uh, I started working on farms. Um, and I really felt that that was my calling. And when uh, your mum, Julia, and I met, um, that was... I, I was at the bar then, but it was you know, not long after that I stopped being at the bar. And, um, and when we got married, I actually had my occupation on the marriage certificate as farmer. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and the only time I've given my occupation as that since is uh, just a few days ago when a friend and neighbour asked us to witness her will. <laughs> And I was wondering what to put down as, as, as occupation, and I put down farmer. Um, but I, I, yeah, I really wanted to be a farmer. And my parents had a farm, and I played with the idea of, of trying... But I, I really wanted to market garden, and it wasn't a particularly good property for that. And, um, and then I played with being a garden writer, and I probably... 
if I have any regrets, and I don't really like looking back and regretting things in the past because I think they happened for a reason. Mm. I, I, that's, that's a turn I probably should have taken. I probably should have gone to a horticultural college and, and, and gone down that. If I was going to really fulfil myself, I probably should have gone down that track. Um, but as it was, um, we moved to Tasmania and, uh, and then we had the opportunity to buy the farm that you grew up on and we needed to pay for it and I essentially went back to the law in order to be able to do that. I mean, I actually went back to the law just before that because I just didn't know what else to do with myself at the time but um, yeah, I got cemented into the law by having the farm but without the farm I, I, I couldn't have managed mm. through those years. I was um, working as a lawyer and, um, and, uh, and really worked as a lawyer right through from well, that was 1981, through to when I retired in 2012. And you, yeah, I mean, my head's going a few different ways right now, but I guess I want to say, like, it is so... And I think it would have been even harder for you growing up because you grew up in an era where it was a bit more practical, like you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, yeah. like without trying to stereotype it, but it very much was that era of like, what's your career? Mm. And it was a lot more mainstream. Whereas I've probably grown up in the juncture, I think, of mm. like picking a career as opposed to finding a career, which mm. I think is a generation coming behind us where we're almost paving the way to be able to do things differently. So when they come through, it's sort of the norm to potentially create something that isn't even out there yet um as a by way of a career so i can imagine how challenging it would have been to kind of feel like an outlier almost in your interests when the world was a little bit trying to hold you to the to the straight and narrow am i correcting that well yes and no um uh during the day i was a conventional lawyer uh, well, slightly conventional lawyer, I suppose I should say. Um, and uh, But it, in my downtime, I was essentially a farmer and gardener. Mm. And, um, and that was unconventional. Um, I didn't know anybody as a lawyer who was trying to do what I was doing. <laughs> and, um, and I wasn't just a farmer and gardener. I was full tilt at it. So yeah. I would pour huge amounts of energy into it um, when I wasn't working. And the, da- the, the other side to that which was probably fortunate in some ways, was I couldn't farm with and garden with that intensity if I, was, if I had a really intense legal job. And I had worked out when I was at the bar that I didn't want to be a barrister, although I loved... I'm quite, I'm quite well designed to be a barrister um, on an intellectual level uh, and, and, you know, with language and stuff like that. I'm not designed to cope with the demands of the work in that a barrister is in, on, on, on his feet all day long and he's preparing his briefs and writing his opinions at night and on the weekends. And that wrecks, you don't have any spare time, you can't get out of doors, it wrecks family relationships. Mm. I saw this very, very close hand in that year that I was at the bar. I knew I couldn't do that. When I came to Tasmania, it's a fused profession, so here, or was then, sorry, it isn't now so much. And, um, and you, you, if you were doing barrister's work, you were also being a solicitor. So you weren't just preparing your cases and writing opinions. You were also doing all the legwork of writing letters, 
um, of uh, giving advice in your rooms, of um, hunting down witnesses, of briefing witnesses. The demands to be a really good barrister stroke solicitor in Tasmania at the time were shocking and I wasn't prepared to do it. And so in the end, um, partly because of that and partly because of my natural inclination towards constitutional law and administrative law, I ended up working for the Commonwealth Government and then I ended up working for the State Government. And I um, and I managed to basically keep my work within bounds so that it wasn't so demanding that I couldn't farm and garden properly. Um, that got a bit out of control when I became ombudsman in 2005. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you know where that led. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. But, like we say, no regrets because, I guess, through all of this, you... I guess the underlying tone is that the love of gardening and farming has been your rock. You always said to me, you need a rock in life. Mm. And mm. that love has been the rock almost that's kind of held you... Mm on the straight and narrow now into retirement it's sort of what drives you even more so but I mean you were really like I don't know because I I mean I so I was born in 86 so I didn't see a lot of the really interesting work that you got to do when you came to Tasmania but you worked on the Franklin campaign oh yeah I was really blessed with my legal work and um, because I had I was um I was at university in the Whitlam years when the level of optimism in the in the young was enormous, mm. um, we could see the environmental crisis which has unfolded since. I knew, you know, at that stage, of the damage that fossil, the consumption of fossil fuels was doing. It was a huge concern to a lot of people. We think it's a modern, it's a modern understanding, but it's not. It was really intense at that time, and that infused my life hugely, and. Um, yeah, so um, I was very interested in environmental matters. And when we came to Tasmania in 1981, one of the first things Julia and I did was to go to the Wilderness Society and knock on the door and say hello. Um, we'd heard Bob Brown speak in Melbourne um, when we were there, and we were really interested in what was threatened, the threats to, you know, to um, southwest Tasmania and what was being done about them. And um, well, we met Bob and... Uh, we used to go to nightly meetings of the Wilderness Society to hear what they were up to. And it wasn't long... Uh, then I, I ended up in private practice, and it wasn't long after I started in private practice, I mean, in a firm in Hobart, that the Wilderness Society, because they knew of me and my interest, they came knocking on my door. And even in that first year, I think it was, in 1981, I became the instructing solicitor for an application which the Wilderness Society made to the High Court um, to... Uh, to try and stop um, funding being given by the Commonwealth Government through the Loans Council to Tasmania to build the Franklin Dam. Um, so I was immediately thrown into really high-level um, environmental action. Um, it failed. Um, it deserved to fail on legal grounds, um, but it was a good try. And then I moved to the Commonwealth um, in 1986, and I was just in the right place at the right time. And um, there uh, a... Uh, dispute arose then between Tasmania and the Commonwealth Government over logging on the fringes of the World Heritage Area. And um, that resulted in an application by the Commonwealth under the World Heritage legislation to um, to stop Tasmania from carrying out this logging. And that then led to, uh, they wanted to establish an inquiry. Um, 
and uh, and that involved um, at that stage an application to the High Court for an interim injunction followed by a full injunction to, to stop the state from doing what it wanted to do and I was the instructing solicitor in that. Hmm. So I was back in the High Court again and, um, and that um, reinforced my interest in constitutional law and I went to work um, because of my I sort of became known for my constitutional work a bit at that stage and that, that helped me get my job with with the Solicitor General's office in Tasmania mm. um, in 1989 which I was really scared about taking on because Robin Gray was the Premier at the time and I was a bit worried about getting into sort of moral conflict but um, so I did a lot of environmental work after that but um, yeah, all my legal work was really infused with an interest in the environment, and I was really lucky to do some very, very mm. important work in that area. Do you think Tasmania has changed in its attitude towards the environment now? I mean, I now sit on the National Parks and Wildlife Advisory Council, um, particularly interested in the areas of tourism and the way that the estate's managed as a business and for recreational purposes as well. But I'm kind of wondering whether we see eye to eye on where Tassie's at now because you're sort of looking from the outside in and listen and read and um, still have a keen interest in the state of Tasmania, whereas I am sort of more in it and, I'm, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, well, I think you have to be in it. Um, you have, it I, think, I think there's, there's a, there's a certain level of pressure can be applied from outside as you can see from you know, the people power that's produced the end to the plans to dam the Franklin and stuff like that. But if you look at it from, from one angle, it's very, very easy for a government to make a decision. It's amazingly hard. The amount of energy that's needed on the other side to change a government's decision, if you're using people power, is enormous. It's very hard to muster and it's always uncertain of outcome. I think some of us, those who are strong enough, have to work within the system and change it. And I have seen some wonderful work done in changing the system. But then it's always a matter of eternal vigilance. And um, you just take your eye off the ball and before you know where you are, you'll have people whose principles are entirely different to your own um, who, will get, who will start on their destructive path and you've just got to constantly be looking at, at it as to where Tasmania is now, I think in many ways it's wonderful to see the, the coming to reality of what the, the, the conservationists, um, Wilderness Society and others were preaching in, during the, the Franklin campaign. They were saying, there's no economic sense in building this dam. We don't want to be supporting heavy industry in Tasmania. This is a place that is perfect for tourism and ecotourism, and that's what we should be investing our money in, and, and um, you know, clean and green. And that's exactly what's happened, although they were shouted down at the time. Tasmania is known for its wilderness, for its clean food, for its clean water, for its clean air. It's its branding. Exactly, I mean, it is um... its branding, and they couldn't see it at the time. Yeah. But the conservationists could, and they, they've, they've been justified in spades. The other side to that is what we were talking about before, is over-tourism, mm. the destruction of the beauty that people come to see by their very presence. Mm. 
um, it's an impossible balance, really. And then there's also, a, a, I think, a risk now that um, if tourism can't be the main economic driver, although I like to be the optimist in it and think that domestic tourism will take the place of the international markets, mm-hmm. um, just because, again, people needing to escape the cities um, to have a change of scenery and appreciation of this newfound love affair of walking and running that started through the COVID experience and they'll seek us out but if that doesn't happen that there needs to be another economic driver in Tasmania and it's very easy for us to revert to old ways Mm. you know it's hard to go like you say it's almost hard to push towards the new um we tend to be creatures of routine Mm. and um I just I hope that I, I hope the former is where we go but I think that there's a risk yeah look I feel optimistic about that I mean you were saying before about the different generations and and your generation, I think, has so many extraordinarily creative people who who know, um, your generation knows better than anybody in a way, what's been done to the planet. And I do mm. think there's reason to be hopeful about that. I mean, the opportunities for the destructive industries are, are not really there anymore. I mean, the forests are screwed. I mean, you can't just keep on um, taking timber out of that and sending it off to make paper on the other side of the world. Um, uh, the fisheries are not going to be able to be exploited in the way they have been in the past. I mean, there are limits there. And I think what Tasmania does have, which needs to be used, is wonderful soils, mm. abundant water, wonderful climate. Uh, we, The other side of the world is already importing food from here because there's such a demand for clean food. Mm. Tasmania can do it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah. And so, as just before we go there, I guess I'm curious because <clears throat> something that is probably, I mean, anyone looking in from the outside says that I don't do things slowly, and admittedly, I probably don't. But from my perspective, um, I feel like one of the things that has slowed me down has been a sense of um, what right do I have to stick my nose in a pie where I didn't go to uni to do this. I'm not educated in that sense. So I'm thinking about, say, the environmental work that I work in now and also to have positioned myself as a, as a voice in the community that people are listening to um, on different issues and through my podcast, through my writing and the book coming out and my blogging. Um, I'm on the radio quite a lot. I'm often asked to comment in the media, but... I don't really have an area of expertise like you do. Like I didn't do constitutional law and I wasn't a doctor and I, you know, I am um, a jack of all trades and I, it's been a bit that slowed me down for a long time. It's like, what right, what voice do I have to be a voice? And yet I kind of eventually reached a point, well, if not me, then whom? Exactly. And, um, but I, but I guess I wonder what your words of wisdom are on that issue because I think a lot of people could listen to this and go I completely agree we've got to move away from old growth logging we've got to move towards organic farming and but what what do I have to offer I'm not you know I'm not environmentalist I'm not an expert in any of those areas like I I don't think it matters I mean I think in a sense the the whole requirement for the degree the certificate the diploma it's a con and it's um it supports an educational industry, which frankly isn't, shouldn't be necessary. I mean, some of the people I most admire 
are self-taught and they are influential. I'll give you an example. Philip Adams on the ABC radio. I, I'm in awe of that man. He is an autodidact. He's completely self-taught, never been to university. He's got the most immense brain. He's across so many issues. He can interview somebody with knowledge on, on an, an, an enormous range of topics. Um, another example, uh, a man called John Kempf, who's an Amish man in America, who is a self-taught agronomist. He's never, as, I know, as far as I know, ever been to university. He's one of the best agronomists in regenerative agriculture in the world. Um, and uh, he's an utter inspiration. You don't need to have what the world recognises in order to have a good voice. Mm. You just need to be committed and you just need to do the work to know, to, to, to get the knowledge. Mm. And whether or not it's recognised by some ticket that's offered by a university or a college is irrelevant. And I think I've also, what I believe on it now is that you also need to have a very strong sense of self. Mm. Because one experience that I've had as someone younger stepping into boardrooms and ending up in all sorts of quirky situations that in some ways that on the outside looking in I don't belong has been the risk of being shot down, pushed around um, or people saying to me things like, oh, you know, you you do so well working in the government system, working at parks. And if you don't have a strong sense of self, you get this like, oh, maybe I should. And it's so easy to then end up on tangents or spread yourself really thin. Um, us Olstons, we are definitely yes creatures. We tend to say yes more than we say no. And you can quickly end up in a situation where you feel like you're living in the middle of a hurricane and not true to yourself. And so... I think that's kind of actually one of the places where my motto in life is be wild, play wild, perform wild. But be wild is about, and I was thinking about it this morning when I was out on a jog actually, is it's about living with a more intuitive self, which is what we were talking about before, of like this is who I am and this is what I stand for in life. You know, as honey, not as honey at the work setting, but just as honey. And I think if you kind of have that deep be wild self of um, sense of um, self and, in, and in, living in a really intuitive way, then you can really explore like what you love and why you love it um, and feel like you're then in a position to be able to perform or to stand up and speak for it, I think. Uh. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think the best thing that you can acquire and, dare I say, give your children as a parent is self-esteem. And as a parent, I think it's your task to help the child individuate mm. so that they know who they are and they don't they, they don't have any any equivocation about that so that and, and and added to that strong principles so that if something is going on around them that they don't agree with or that yeah they're not in harmony with they are able to speak up if it's appropriate mm. I think that's just absolutely fundamental mm. and you know referring to the, the board situation it's the role of a board member to to listen to understand and if they disagree say so mm. put their head above the parapet and and stand up for what they believe and obviously they might be persuaded to the contrary but they have to they have to be persuaded if they're not going to say to their mm. to their principles um yeah these are really really important things would you say then 
that if you, so not you as in us as the broad listeners, but mm. if we felt like we were in a position where we weren't living in truth with our self mm. and in calling and we were doing it out of a sense of duty and purpose or financial stability or gain, mm. would you now looking back on your experiences say have the bravery to step outside of that? Yeah, yeah, you need it. Um, and and uh, there are times in my life when I haven't done that. Mm. And you pay for it. Mm. Um, yeah, if you're not true to yourself, you will pay for it. Mm. And um, because your inner self is always honest, mm. always knows, and it'll just keep trying to drag you back Yeah. by whatever means. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, mm. and it's cool. It's interesting because um, I, I look, you know, like we said, no regrets, because I don't believe in regrets at all these days. I think they're just great learning opportunities and they drag you closer to your sense of self and your intuitive self. But um, I look back at my competitive sporting career. I'm so grateful for it because it absolutely opened a million doors that mm. I don't think could have opened without it. But I now know intuitively that I am not a competitive person against other people. I'm exceptionally competitive with myself in a, in a, in only coming from a place of wanting the best for myself and to do my best work. But I look back at my competitive career in sport and just know that it wasn't me. Um, But I kind of have known all along that you didn't really get excited about me being so competitively involved as a youngster. (laughs) And even when I won the world title, I remember just before that you said to me at some stage, like, I would never wish success on anyone. And I'm just kind of wondering now, like in hindsight and with maturity to hear it is like, what, you know, what did you see as more my calling rather than competitive sport? Oh, oh, that's a challenge. Um, I've always said to you that I thought you would take an eclectic path in life. And I've always thought, therefore, that the calling should be something that spoke to you, like that spoke to your heart. And I totally agree, you know, that you really ought to pursue that really um, through thick and thin, even if it's financially difficult or whatever. Um, yeah, and I, I, I would absolutely accept that all the successes of the competition, the successes um, have, been, have helped make you and um, they've provided enormous challenges which have helped you form who you are. Uh, and that's all wonderful. Um, my, my concern has always been in, in that area um, that we're talking about, um, I do think celebrity is terribly dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you would agree that your celebrity at such a young age created a lot of problems for you. Mm. And I think your little book um, that's just published um, bears that out. But um, so I think it was the, the, the cautious, careful concerned father that was thinking where does this lead is this can this beast be controlled um i'd seen it in from afar looking at you know just people in general in society i'd seen it with my sister in a way Mm. in that um for a while she uh, the media hunted her out um for various different things related to horses and eventually her injury and with as a paraplegic and um 
and I, I thought it was a destructive thing. The media will um, eat you up, really. They'll use you for their purposes and then they'll discard you and move on to the next thing. And I just think that's such a shockingly destructive thing. Um, so I was just, yeah, a concerned father, I think, mm. in that. Um, and, yeah, I also think that um, the enormous amount of endeavour that's involved in achieving as a... As a um, an elite athlete uh, also closes off options um, and sure. and blinkers um, people to other options and then there's the whole problem of well what do you do after you're no longer elite um, and um, and the elites are again just used by society they're discarded when they're not needed and so on I think the whole um, pursuit of of um, elite status as an athlete is is fraught with danger. So I I don't um, I think it's wonderful what you've achieved. I wouldn't take any of that away from you, but I'm always standing in the background saying, "Oh, I'm wondering what this might lead to." <laughs> and yet I dragged you through that for like <laughs> over twenty years of like you just wondering where it was. But I, yeah, and I I hear you. I I don't necessarily think it's it's just a challenge with being competitive or being an athlete or being involved in sport. I think it's actually actually a challenge of the system. And I, I kind of write about this more in a storytelling way. I don't write about it with such bluntness as I probably speak about it now. But never at one point in that journey as an athlete, <clears throat> even when I was involved in the institutes of sport and, um, you know, receiving accolades as Australian of the Year and things like that. Like, never in any of that point was the story, um, how do we help you to navigate who you are and how do we help you to navigate the way out of it? There was always this, There was always a little bit of an undertone of, like, make sure you have something else for when you're not an athlete. But it, what it did was it raised this idea of athleticism being black or white, on or off, yes. that eventually at some point you're an athlete, you're only an athlete, and you are driven as an athlete until you reach a point where you can no longer be an athlete or no longer want to be an athlete, and then you go out to the big wide world and become an adult. And that was very much the story. Whereas now I kind of hope we're moving more to a point of like, you're an athlete, but you might also be a daughter, you might also be a friend, you might also be a student, you might also be a lawyer, you might, whatever that is, that it's not just one or the other, but it's this melding of all these different archetypes that build build who you are and drive you forwards. And by doing that, I feel like we're giving um, our younger athletes an opportunity to to not shut off other opportunities just to follow their athleticism. Yeah. And that if they do, it comes from a point of a choice, not from a, this is how it's always been done. Because I, I absolutely agree that getting to um, really like the main main time it's hit me was like around 30 32 years of age so a few years ago of realizing I didn't want to be an athlete competitively anymore but I had that exact thinking is like I'm now no longer an athlete so who am I like and it was just such a frightening hole to fall into like this massive void opens up and you almost grieve it because it was such a cornerstone of routine almost in your life. It was sort of the routine that you end up missing more than anything. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but you've navigated it really well. I mean, you transitioned from elite athlete to 
I don't know, amateur athlete or a recreational athlete or something, and then you've, you've built a business around it, and there's, there's so many sides to it. But uh, a lot of people have got that sudden bang. It's yeah. an end to it, and they don't know what to do with their lives. Yeah. I think that was probably your your little like grounding influence a lot through though my upbringing was you were you always wanted to expose us to all sorts of ways of thinking and you did it the same with university it was like often when I was getting itchy feet and thinking about the next degree I've really got quite a few but the next thing I remember you often saying to me university of life and like university of life (laughs) so I think like I've been lucky that I've probably had a a bit of a grounding father in all of this because yeah, you're quite right. Like being sucked into such an international scene, you know, when when the world title, it's yeah. just it it was just the most surreal hurricane. I think though the other thing that I and whether or not it was kind of almost a spiritual awakening, but when I won that gold medal, I had a clear realization that it didn't change me as who I was. Yeah, I remember that. And um, I think yeah. I was really blessed to yeah. have had that because otherwise can just see how it would just send you onto this new trajectory yeah. of experience. And I was like, I think Tasmania probably does that as well. It's like when you fly all the way home for like 30 hours and you land on like the tarmac in Hobart airport without aero bridges and with no fuss, like it, it's a fairly earthy experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's but, one, there's one thing I think to be said also about being an elite athlete um, or being a committed athlete even is that it teaches you, I mean, you, what you've achieved since is grounded in lots of, lots of, um, you know, just think of how you used to get up with your mum 5.30 in the morning, yeah. go swimming training, go to school, do your, do your day at school, go back to swimming training, come home, do your homework, go to bed, and then do that day in, day out. The, the discipline that taught you about how to use your time um, and then you know how to prepare your body and how to make sure that you you know were getting enough sleep and all those things that that grounding is mm. um, is lifelong mm. and I think it's one of the reasons why um, highly accomplished athletes often go on to do very good things in business and so on because they've got the disciplines that most other people don't have. Um, they don't take their time to watch television in the evenings because they haven't got the time to do it. Oh, completely. Yeah. Mm. I completely agree. I think, though, the, the thing I'd like to say, though, because in some ways I kind of feel like I don't like to... I don't even like writing when I come into Australia like businesswoman or director because that's my career. Now, like, I'm almost embarrassed to be a businesswoman because I think that... When you say that, it sounds like you're striving to set out to make money um, in a business. And I know the world and the economy relies on people making money. Like, that's how you survive in this world. But um, I've never come out of my athletic career or through the time. Like, I mean, Find Your Feet's now been in existence for over 10 years, which is kind of fairly surreal. I never expected that. I never expected it because I never set out to run a business. set out to help people and the only time that it's never served me is when I focused on making money and the times when it's done well is when I focused on my true sense of purpose which is to help other people find their feet and I I guess that's kind of why I write the book as well is like not because I wanted to you know um 
there's almost it's quite cathartic to write. <laughs> um, I didn't write for cathartic catharsis whatever that word is I didn't write it for that <laughs> yeah um i wrote it because i know that there must be so many other people out there who will read bits of that book whether it's about sport or life or relationships or business or whatever it is and be able to say me too and there's such a power in that and i want i, I want to change the story for young athletes growing up i want to change the story about why we do business and how we do business that um you know and I, I also wanted to share so many of the quirky stories especially from my childhood <laughs> <laughs> I was even like just having a giggle when you were talking about how you were a lawyer and you were so different to everyone but I used to remember like going into your um your office both as when you're at Solicitor General's and when you're at the Ombudsman's office and you'd have all these pot plants like all around the room and it wasn't the pot plants that made me giggle. It was that you used to, like, peel your fruit, like your banana peels, and lay them over the soil for the plants because nitrogen. <laughs> but then, then you get all the little, like, natty flies. Yes. <laughs> like, growing, you know, flying around the room. Um, it was just, yeah, comical. But um, I wrote the book for that reason, too, because there really were some pretty funny stories through it. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Also, <laughs> there's so much to say, really. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think... I. I I agree with, well, there's two things I'd like to say about what you just mentioned, and that is the world needs ethical business. That mm. is really important because um, often capitalism is treated, um, the worst of it can be seen in America, you know, that anything goes, you know. We'll, we'll privatise all the profits and we'll, pub, you know, we'll impose all the losses, all the burdens on the public and on the natural environment and so on. The world's got to find a way of doing business and making money and having a, a working economy without such distract, mm. destruction. Um, yeah. And the, and the other thing um, was that the times when I've gone wrong in my life, I think, are times when I haven't been true. Like I've, I've, I've let some sort of ambition or, or yeah, sort of um, chosen to do something because I thought it might help me later on in some way, you know, like might mm. further my career or something stupid like that, um, rather than listening to my heart. Mm. And, um, and yeah, and, and you know, as I said earlier, you pay for those sorts of decisions. Completely. And I'm really grateful that COVID came because I think I, without realising it, had begun to get on that wrong track in business where... Mm. You know, you think bigger is better. And I said that, I said this quite openly to Graham the other day in the car. Is like, I kind of now just shake my head at myself, even of six months ago, thinking that because in business it's a bit the same, like everything just becomes bigger or faster. Or when are you opening the new store and will you do more tours and how can you outsource the guiding and this and like, and, and, and it's all to. Yeah, just get bigger and better. And it's kind of like the Lorax, isn't it? Dr. Mm, Seuss's mm. book. And COVID just brought you straight back down to ground. And um, and it, it had the same effect in me in business as it did on me as an individual. It's like it's really brought my values and purpose mm. to life. And we've just returned straight to purpose. And it's kind of like you suddenly can breathe again. Mm. It's like you let out this massive sigh and was like, oh, geez, that feels better. So I hope that it's happening for multiple businesses. It, it, is, it is a tricky thing, though, because I I've often think, a person needs to have green growing shoots all the time. You know, if you've got a plant and it hasn't got green growing shoots, 
it's dying and oh, it's certainly not well. And, um, and it, I think it's true of a business as well. It needs growing shoots. Because what would it be like to be just working you know, day to day in a retail shop, just doing the same thing year in, year out until such time as you might have made enough money to retire? I what agree. a dull life would that be? I agree, but it doesn't have to be driven by financial gain. Agreed. As in, you know, you can be reading and learning new things and exploring that and sharing that with your community just out of a sense of love and nothing more. And yeah. you'll find that it will, it, it ultimately will somehow help the bottom line or the opportunities that come for the business and the team working within it. Yeah. I just... I just, I think business almost is just, it helps you to give, to find a voice to Mm. an audience. And that's, I think it's not about, I don't ever think about business now as, as a dollar thing, but then that can really isolate you in the business community. And I find that on the boards that I'm in is that you can end up being kind of the magical thinker in the room because I think a lot of people think that business is about making money. Of course they do. Mm. And, and that's important. It's important to have the magical person in the room. Mm. Um, and, yeah, when I say green shoots, I don't mean the business has to be growing you know, financially. It's got to be having size. It has to be changing. Mm. It has to be vibrant. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to learn is how to have businesses that aren't growing mm. because the world can't afford it. So then on that note, you don't run a business, but you... You have your farm, mm-hmm. and um, for you, it's kind of it's your own business. It's a microcosm of um, enterprise happening there. That you you know you're driven by a sense of purpose and always learning, always growing, always evolving. So, like, what is it that you want to achieve with the property at Bruni, or what did you set out to achieve? And well, I, I can't see that it'll ever make money. Um, it's a sink for money. <laughs> um, uh, it's not big enough to be an economic unit, really. Um, we don't have enough water to um, intensively garden, and um, I don't really want to. I don't want to be a market gardener in my old age. It's too hard. Um, uh, we could probably make money from it if we had some sort of tourist enterprise, but I don't want to take up my time with the tourist enterprise. I just want to enjoy it. The the, the driver is to repair this land. That's the biggest driver of all. I want to leave it in a better state than it was when I arrived there. But the sense I get is it's not just about that land, but it's about exploring what regenerating land means. Absolutely and true. looks like and mm. therefore what others could potentially learn from you doing so. Yeah, I'm at a bit of a hiatus in that respect. I, I feel in many ways I ought to be trying to do some teaching. But I don't know how much I want to invest time into that at the moment. So that's a bit of a, a divide for me at the minute. But yes, you're right. It's a place where I want to experiment with various things that I'm aware of. Um, uh, I'm interested in in gardening in a, in a different climate. It's a very different climate to what I've been used to in the past. That's been quite a big challenge. Um, gardening with um, less water. We've got limitations on our water supplies. Um, the weather's quite tricky in many ways but then the farmers um, we, we, we're we in a fairly small part of Bruni where there's a lot of um, sodic soils which means we've got tunnel erosion and gully erosion which is quite severe the pastures have been very very badly depleted by bad management um, and, uh, and so we're just trying to restore the land um, to health that's the biggest 
concern. And then when you restore land to health, what is the value of that to the greater world? Like, oh, I don't know. Um, unless you, unless you spread your knowledge in some way or your experience in some way, maybe there isn't a great value to the. But if we were to be able to restore more land, like, what is the value of that? Oh, the value of it. Well, there are some people. Um, for instance, there's a man who. Um, splits his time between Zimbabwe and New Mexico, called Alan Savory, who has said that if we properly manage all the savanna grasslands in the world, we can reverse climate change. We can draw down all the excess carbon we put in the atmosphere and return the earth to health. And, um, and I think that's an enormous ask because there, there would be so many people involved with so many diff differing abilities. But uh, on the other hand, I think Technically, I'm, I'm convinced it's true. Um, there's a very famous TED talk by Alan Savory, um, and there's various videos that you can see of his work on YouTube and stuff. You know, and he's turned desertic land to healthy mm. land. He's restored watercourses by just re repairing the land around them. He's done some extraordinary work, and he's written books and encouraged people to adopt his, his learnings around the world, and, and he, he's had an enormous effect as a result of his learnings. Um, so, yeah, if, if I wanted to throw a lot of time into writing and teaching and stuff, um, yeah, I might want to help. I would, I would want to help with that endeavour. Maybe it's a bit early. We've only been at um, our land for three years and I'm still just building the infrastructure that's mm. need, needed to make the place work. And that's a, that's a long-term a long endeavour. So for... I always like to hope, you know, it's nice to listen to stories and hopefully people have enjoyed our ramble today. But, and I, know, I don't come to the podcast thinking about the fact that there are people listening. Like, I've just been really curious by <laughs> the questions I've asked and the answers you've been giving. But for the people who then are listening, like, where, where can they start? Because it's one thing for us to be blessed with land. Like, I live on four acres, you live on a island off an island off an island um, with land but if people want to start doing their bit for the planet growing their food or um, living a conscious life that involves land <laughs> um, where do people start do you think? Mm. Well I would start probably by tr trying to grow food for you know, for reasons of health and for just learning how learning natural cycles and learning to manage soil and things like that, um, it's become really apparent to me in the last year or so that although people think of farmers as um, managers of animals often, mm. really, a farmer, a good farmer, even though they have animals, is a manager of plants. And it's the behaviour of their plants that dictates the, the, the health of their animals mm. and the health of their land. So everybody who wants to be the manager of land has to learn how to be a horticulturalist. And they have to learn how to do it in a way which doesn't harm the earth. If you want to start growing vegetables, uh, I really think there isn't a better place to go than a book written by a Tasmanian, well, he's an adopted Tasmanian from America, 
called Steve Solomon, who lives up um, at Grindelwald near, near Launceston, who's written um, uh, a, a book which has been the various editions um, called um, Growing Vegetables South of Australia. Uh, he's also written a book called The Intelligent Gardener, which uh, is worth reading, but people should handle with a bit of care. But um, certainly is a book that I first mentioned, Growing Vegetables South of Australia, is a really, really good start. He's a very, very capable gardener very experienced, done a lot of organics, he's tried lots and lots of different things, he's got a very mercurial mind, he's a really interesting and and principled man, and that's where I would start if you were trying to grow vegetables in, in Tasmania, or even in southern Australia. Um, and then if you were going to start looking after a piece of land, and wanted to start thinking about how you might do it well, um, people would do well to go to a book which is I see on your bookshelf behind me, um, by a man called Charles Massey, mm. M-A-S-S-Y, called The Cry of the Reed Warbler. So it's an absolutely wonderful book, which um, was published, I think, now about two or three years ago. And um, Charles Massey is a sheep farmer from south, um, I think, southeast of um, Canberra. And, um, and he, he uh, is also an academic working at ANU, and he um, spent time for his PhD and later um, developed that work into the, into the book, um, going around Australia talking to farmers who had adopted regenerative farming. Mm. And he just um, describes, um, he describes the principles behind what they were doing and he also describes the operations and how they came to do what they were doing. He was initially interested in what, what, what was it that would turn a farmer from conventional farming to regenerative farming. And um, and very often it was a crisis of some kind. We had a bushfire or a death in the family or a broken marriage or something like that. But um, uh, there's a lot of meat in there and a lot of yeah. guidance as to where you could go in order to learn more. Um, and and you know, it sets out in, in many ways, by example, the, how to look after land. Mm. I mean, like, I, I don't have a lifestyle, I haven't had a lifestyle where it's been easy to grow food because we've just you know been on the on the go a lot and we're not home a lot but I listened to I think I shared it with your podcast on the Rich Roll podcast recently with Zach Bush Zach Bush thank you and um he was talking about how we need to be flexible in our definition of gardening and um and even farming as in if all we do is like allow our weed patch to grow wilder and freer and plants begin to grow in it and flowers begin to appear and we don't go and slash it all down and we let the bees and the butterflies come in and maybe we plant things like Jerusalem artichokes which can just grow rampant and wild and have beautiful flowers that the insects love like that in itself is better than nothing like it's not what your brain like knowing when I look at your like meticulously perfect garden but I actually don't think the green genes really came my way like I, I love nature and I appreciate it but I managed to kill even my indoor plants that apparently don't need water um very frequently and um but I do I do love the like I've been focusing on just planting clistamens and tea trees and things that the insects and the bees and the birds will love um and just letting them do their thing and creating a space for the paddy melons much to your horror to like graze the lawns here but um I don't know, I, I kind of like to think of it as being a bit more of an open concept. 
It is. I think it should be an open concept. I, I had a bit of a chuckle listening to Zach Bush about that <laughs> uh, for various different reasons. But um, everybody gardens in their own way. And the way a person gardens is a very much a reflection of their personality. Mm. And my personality is largely ordered. And I garden in an ordered way. And I tell myself I do it because that's the most efficient way to garden. And I can, I can hopefully have more reliable crops and so on by doing it that way. But Janelle and I had um, constant um, debates about whether we should allow things to self-sow, and uh, and uh, and I ha- I am allowing more things to self-sow than I have, but I tend to like keep, to keep a bit more control of it. <laughs> and, um, and, and it is true that if you just left a piece of land alone, it would repair itself. Yeah. Um, and it would, but it might take longer, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't be able to use that land for for yield you know, mm-hmm. for human beings and so on so um, yeah there are various ways of looking at that I used to always chuckle that because you were the one that would always like put the seedlings in and everything would be so neat and so orderly like dad's garden was like freaking veggie botanic garden and then mum so I used to say that you were the constructive gardener and then mum would be the one that had come through and weed and it would all happen in one day it was just like a hurricane came through and tidied everything up so I always used to call her the destructive gun <laughs> poor mum but um but you know and then I look at you and Janelle and you're just so polar opposites these days and she's such a fancy free I know she loves watering because she loves water but I could just imagine gardening with her would be like abstract you know coming to meet I don't know engineering it'd just be like two oh, totally different art forms she's, she's wonderful she'll she'll do what i ask her to i just say would you please do some and such and she does it and it's it's um but uh yeah no but i need i need her personality as my foil yeah oh it's awesome um yeah well i've loved today's conversation i mean there's so much i would have loved to explore particularly around the science of regenerative agriculture and gardening and farming but um on that note like i've been really interested in the concept of regeneration in any sense and yeah. maybe even for those people who can't access a garden or growing their own food and are simply focusing on trying to buy organic where possible and that's their bit but you can still think about regenerative concepts in any sector and it's certainly become something I really focus on now in business and, mm. in, and in especially in a business that is focused on both retail Mm -hmm. so selling stuff Mm. and also tourism for example the concept of regenerative in tourism means how can we visit places and take people to visit places in a way that is going to leave that place better off when we leave Mm -hmm. and supporting the local enterprises and people that also have the similar focus and i think if we can all look at that like anything that we do can we do it but leave the place better off I think that's kind of when we're going to get on a pathway to, I guess, supporting the planet where it yeah. needs to go. COVID-19 yeah. is a perfect opportunity, I think, to kind of return to that. Um, cause it's it it is an stop. extraordinary opportunity. It's painful for so many people. Um, yeah, but for the, for, the race, for the human race as a whole, it's a wonderful opportunity. Mm. Mm. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love you too.